Hey, everybody. We're talking to Alan Blakeborough today. What an amazing guy. He's a veteran, an entrepreneur, and Olympic fencer. He's got some incredible stories about sinking tanks and starting businesses. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, we have a great guest today, Mr. Alan Blakeborough. He is the founder and CEO of a new venture called Tax Titans, and he is just building something really special. I'm so excited to welcome you to the show today, Alan. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Dallas. Thanks for having me on. It is so great. It was great catching up with you before the show. You are a man of many stories. I'm excited to unpack some of this today because this is just awesome. I, I love your heart for, for vets and entrepreneurship and just, I love how you're not afraid to go just go after something. So tell us a little bit about who Alan is and where he came from. Give us a little synopsis of your story. I joke around that I'm a recovering accountant, got my <laughs> accounting degree at Siena College. Then after going from college into the military, got out of the military and then started opening fencing schools. Enjoyed doing that. Basically started the fencing school industry in the U.S. Did that for Oh, the next 30 years. And wow. then during that point in time, when I moved down to Greenville, got involved with various veteran organizations. One of them dealt with homeless vets. And then as everybody knows, the pandemic hit mm -hmm. and couldn't teach fencing at fencing schools anymore. So started learning how to make tiny homes out of shipping containers for homeless vets. Oh. And was doing that for about two years. When a friend of mine that had an accounting practice needed some help, so went in, decided to try to help him find some talent, and in trying to find him talent, realized that the accounting industry is upside down, mm. uh, put together this company called Tax Titans that has created the first online marketplace for taxpayers and tax professionals. Okay. Okay. I want to stop you because we're going to okay. get to that in a lot more detail. I want to go back and let's talk about your experience. You got an accounting degree and you came out. What was it that, because that's just an interesting transition of itself. You get, you go to college, you get an accounting degree and you go, I think I want to go be in the military. What was, how did that happen? What was the path there? So for me paying for college, I got offered an ROTC scholarship. Uh, um, so it was like, okay, great. They're going to pay for me to go to college. I owe them three years afterwards. My degree was going to be in accounting. And then when I had to figure out what branch I wanted to be in, I told them that I wanted to be in infantry. 
And I thought it was funny because out of the 280 lieutenants that were in my infantry officer basic course, I was the only accountant. Everybody else had poli-sci degrees, history degrees. Around tax time, I was the most popular guy in base. <laughs> I was the only one that knew how to do taxes. You were the man. That's so funny. That's awesome. So you were doing taxes when you were right out of school on base with all your military buddies. So then you served. Was the military for you? What kind of, because that was an experience that helped you pay for school. What, how would you say that was a shaping experience for you? Was that good, bad? I think it was great. The military, whether or not you want to make it a career or you're going in for three to six or 10 years, teaches you how to be self-reliant. It teaches you that no failure is ultimate. It basically, you learn from your mistakes, you go on, you have contingency plans, you figure out how you're going to work your way through a problem. And from that aspect, that's a lot of carryover into the business world that basically allows you to go, okay, I had a bad season. I had a bad client. What did I do wrong? Learn from that and then move forward. A lot of business leaders, a lot of books these days are written about people who have military experiences and then applying them to business. Um, yeah, I think yeah. for me, being an entrepreneur, the military background has been a huge bonus for me. That's awesome. So now... You had made a comment about a story while you're in the military. You said you're the only guy that you know that sank an M1 tank. What? Yep. How does one go about sinking a tank? How does that even how oh, does that happen? Or, so we, we did some joint training operations with the folks at Fort Drum up in New York, the infantry and the tank unit, the 49th Armor that I was part of. And as we were moving across an area, we did not know that prior to us going up there, they had moved all the housing from one part of the base to another. And up in the Northeast, everybody has basements in their homes, unlike in the South. So it had been raining for about two weeks before we had gotten there. So all of the basements were filled with water. So as we were oh driving the tank goodness. across the field, literally dropped the entire tank into a basement that was filled with water. Oh my goodness. Yep. Did anybody so, get hurt? That no, seems like no, it I, could be. No, I, the only thing that happened is the minute the you felt gravity fall, my driver over CVCs started yelling and screaming that he was drowning. So everybody popped their hatches, got out, and if you know anything about military heavy vehicles, there's a thing called an M88 that is a tow truck for big vehicles and tanks. And so I called our motor sergeant up and I was like, hey, I need you to bring two 88s to my location to <laughs> my tank. And he said, sir, I've been in this man's military for over 20 years. I have never needed two 88s to get a single vehicle in my entire military career. And I said, okay, if you drive all the way out here and it's about 20 minutes to my location and you have to go back to get the other 88, I said, I'm wasting an entire day of training and you're going to have to buy everybody in my platoon a case of beer. He was like, all right, sir, if you're wrong and I can get the tank out with my 188, what are you going to give everybody here in the motor pool? I said, well, I'll buy everybody crown or bourbon. He was like, yeah, oh, yeah. it's a hell of a deal, sir. We'll do that. <laughs> so we're standing on the tank in, in the middle out there in the field and he comes over to the berm and he goes, sir, I see you and I see your crew. Where is the tank? 
<laughs> now I'm like, we're standing on it. It's under the water. And he was like, oh, damn. And I was like, okay, we'll take Coors Light. I, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. So. Send it on up. Did he even try with one or did he just no. turn around? He, anyway, did- he just, he understood, okay, there used to be housing out here. And then it dawned on him, oh my God, they didn't fill in the basements. And he just literally, I had three inches uh, on one side of the tank, three inches on the other. I probably couldn't have done it on purpose and fell perfectly in. You are and, kidding me. Nope. Oh my goodness. So we took hmm. the main barrel, went into the ground. We took a core sample all the way down to the breach. Yeah. Oh, lots of paperwork man. went red line of tank. So, oh goodness. So. Was there any one person responsible for not filling it in? Was just a kind of everybody no, oversight, just, just it, like it just was happened. an oversight. They were like they just picked up the housing, they moved it from one place to the other for us to be able to do these tank exercises. Mm. At least you got a case of beer out of it, and everybody yep. on your team got to thank you for that. We lost a day, but everybody got compensated with a little something, something. So that's uh, that's an awesome story. I like that. So you leave, you leave the military, and then you have this. I don't know, like how you have this epiphany that you're going to get into fencing. You you've been into fencing and you didn't just get into fencing. I, if I'm going to go get into karate, like I go down to the karate school and start taking lessons. This is, you go take that to the next level. So tell us a little bit about that. When I was in high school, local college offered fencing to people that were in the high school area in upstate New York. So went and did that and was a hacker or swashbuckler with not any great skill. Then did it in college as a club, had fun with it, was teaching people how to do it. It was part of the the ROTC program. We all had to do something as far as an involved activity. Then from there, once I got out of the military, it was like, hey, even though I had this accounting degree, I really don't want to do accounting and had always had this idea about opening up a fencing school, trying to do a dedicated thing like a martial arts dojo. So from that aspect, we were like, okay, so in South Florida, decided to open up a little tiny little fencing facility. Everybody started coming, wanting to learn because nothing like that existed. And then from that aspect, wound up competing local tournaments, regional tournaments, and then wound up going to a national tournament in San Francisco, uh, which they kind of term as Olympic trials. Had a whole bunch of frequent flyer miles, decided to go compete. Um, so you started this. So let's jump back for a second. You started the, a fencing business because you you came out of the military and were like, I've got to do something. I don't want to do accounting. You just enjoyed fencing? You yeah, just from I high school? You just like, I enjoyed fencing. I'm going to well, start a fencing business. We had joked around all the time when we were fencing in college and in high school that there wasn't any dedicated space like a karate dojo. I had taken karate Mm. as a kid, and we all joked around that eventually when we had real jobs, we were going to pool our money together, rent a place so we could fence as often as we wanted to. Do it yourself, yeah. And so you just decided that you were going to make good on that, and here we go. So was that difficult when you first started? You, You can see that there's not other fencing places around. I've never seen a fencing training studio so i could see how you say there's not this doesn't exist but you really didn't know if the there was the market was there i guess other than you and your friends and i your kind of assumption or did you i don't know well the only the only thing that i could figure out i'm like people like doing martial arts and there's basically a martial arts dojo just about in every strip mall 
Yes. I said fencing, there's NCAA, there's college scholarships and stuff for people to get involved in the sport. You know, if parents are willing to pay for their kids to do martial arts, maybe they'll be willing to pay for their kids to swing a metal stick and hit another kid with it in the hopes of going to college. I think that's a great idea. I love your hunch and your insight in that. You see there's an end game there, right? There's NCAA money available if you want to go to college and play, and yet there's no real there's no real organization around that training and professionalism of that underneath the college environment, unless it's just in high school, which today there's so much club ball and extra specialization. That was a long time ago. You were a bit ahead of the time on that curve, on that insight, I think. Yeah, I think I joke around that I was a disruptor before disrupting was a thing. (laughs) So when you have this insight, you start this, your first when you kind of rolled that out, how accepted was it? Was it easy the first year? Did you just immediately kind of start getting clients or was it tough? Uh, no, it worked out really well. We immediately started getting clients where it was tough is in the accepted fencing world. Um, I wasn't oh. anybody that came from a pedigree of this master and this master, like the whole uh. Bruce Lee, when we decided that he was going to teach his form of martial arts. All of the martial arts senseis and masters were like, what gives you the right or who has given you the blessing in order to teach the Westerner how to do martial arts? And he was like, Uh, I'm in the United States. I'll teach you anybody who wants to learn. My thing was, is I'll teach anybody who wants to come through the door and write a check and say, teach my kid how to fence. Sure. And they joked around. They started calling our students McFencers, like McDonald's, because we were churning them out. Until our uh, students started beating their students. And, uh, <laughs> it was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that is so awesome. I love that. All right. We're going to get into more of that in a minute. But you also had an uh, ulterior motive as well. Personally, you've fallen even more in love with the sport and you think, okay, maybe I can go make a run at this at the, uh, around that same time. So you're using this to coach students, but then in in that time that you're spending all this time fencing, you're getting better and honing your craft and then decide to decide to do what with that. So there, there's a magazine that come out at the time called us fencing and, um, you know, all of the national tournaments, all the Olympic trials results were in there. And all of my students in the school in Florida were like, what is it like to compete at those events? And I was like, well, I don't know. And they were like, Mm. oh, you've never been to one. I'm like, no. I said, but there's one in San Francisco in 94. I guess I'll cash in my frequent flyer miles and I'll go and try to fence in one of these. So I went there. There were 144 fencers from 14 different countries from their various Olympic squads. In fencing, you have ratings. So from what is called an E rating all the way up to A's and your A's are usually your Olympic level folks. And out of the 144 people there, there were only C three C level fencers, which is what I was. And my first match of the day, there was about 30 people watching the match, which I was intimidated about going, okay, why are all these people standing here watching this match? And then wound up fencing this guy, beating him five to one. And then everybody telling me congratulations. And I was like, why are you congratulating me? And it's like, well, that's Paul Freeberg. He's the number one fencer in the United States. He's been on the last two Olympic teams. Good gracious. went through the entire rest of my fencing pool undefeated for the day. What? And, And everybody was like, 
who in the holy hell is this? <laughs> Do they have even fencing in Florida? Because up until this point, all fencing was in either New York or California. So most of the fencing at that time was concentrated in New York, California. And you yep. just, in Florida, you just were this kind of outsider. Yep. I love that. I love that. So you're an outsider. You're in Florida. You're working on your craft. You're teaching your kids. You decide out of necessity, they're asking me, I've never done this before. I'm going to go and check it out. And then you go whip the guy that's been in the last two Olympics. Yep. <laughs> well, I would say that it was time well spent. You definitely got oh, yeah. experience and you could go tell your kids. Did you take back any of the trophies or winnings or medals or anything like that? You came away with that or you just tell them some really good stories? Oh, no. So after that, I went to another Olympic trial and another Olympic trial and then made the squad in 94. One of the funny stories that I tell students is about the same time, all of the Eastern Europeans, Russians were immigrating to the United States because the Iron Curtain had fallen. Mm. And at the U.S. Olympic Festival, the top 15 fencers in the country are there. And one of the nice things is you get to spend a week there. You get to train with all these Olympic coaches. And I was very excited because I'm like, wow, I'm actually going to finally get to train with somebody that's Olympic level trained Olympians. This is going to be my shining moment to gain some pearls of wisdom, some amazing, you know, tactics and strategies. And one of the top coaches in the world is Nazmanov. And uh, wow. so I went up to my, my turn to train with him for the day. And I went up to him and he was like, okay, he says, we're going to work on a drill. Give me a drill you do with your fencing coach. I'm like, I don't have a coach, so I don't have a drill. And he was like, okay. He goes, well, a lot of elite fencers, they outgrow their coaches. So tell me a drill or something you want to do that you used to do with your coach. And I said to him, well, I, I've never had a coach. And he was like, so you're here on the squad. You've never <laughs> the Olympic team. Right. And, and, and I'm like, no. He was like, Okay, go fence with the other guys. I don't want to mess up anything that you got going on. I was like, oh my oh. goodness. I was like, you're my, kidding me. Nope. I was like, my, my one opportunity. I was like, yep. You, so you make the Olympic team. You go to where all the Olympians are training with this yep. renowned coach. And he's almost scared to coach because you're, the method that you've used to get there is so different than what he's used to. Correct. That's amazing. I wonder if that was actually a good idea or not. I don't know. Like, what do you feel like? Looking back, well, do you feel like I, it would have been a good idea to do these drills or you think it would have messed you up? No, I don't think it would have messed me up. But it would have allowed me to take my military method of a task, condition, and standard and then take what he was showing me and then break it down. After coaching for 30 years, there's only, I joke around with the students, there's only so many attacks, there's only so many defensive moves. Everybody knows all of the same moves. Everything in fencing is a matter of distance and timing. And as long as you can control distance and timing, that's going to be the difference between you winning the match and you losing the match. Ah, oh, distance and timing. Oh, that's cool. Which um, applies a lot of, to business as well. So Yeah, boy, isn't that, the, isn't that the case? In terms of competition, I think if there's so many... There's so many aspects. I love to talk about the task, condition, and standard that you mentioned right there. Sure. Do you apply that kind of methodology in your coaching at your schools and stuff? Oh, you, absolutely. You so we have codified not only a teaching method, but how to open and run fencing schools. I've ah. helped open probably over 60 fencing schools over the last 30 years. That's amazing. Um, 
And basically any task that you do, and I use it in fencing, and the military is great about this, and everything from whether it be firing an M16 to operating a nuclear sub, everything is broken down into that task condition and standards. As an example, the task might be, all right, you have to learn how to make a lunge, which is one of the standard pieces of footwork in fencing. The standard is that you're able to do it nine times out of 10 correctly. And mm. the condition is you got to do it while somebody else is trying to hit you with a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so from that aspect, if, if the standard is you have to do it nine times and you only can do it six, okay, then we need to scale back to go with, to the subtasks are that make up the lunge because some part of the lunge you're having a problem with. And then once you break it down into its components, it's kind of like putting one foot in front of the other. And in the business world, whether it be fencing, volleyball, shooting, running a business as a CEO, you know, everybody's day-to-day activity is broken down to those tasks. And whether or not somebody keeps their job or they get fired is based on what the standard is that they're being measured against in Uh, the business world, especially for things like fintechs or accelerators or incubator programs. It's okay. What are your KPIs? What are your goals? What are the metrics that you're being measured by? And being an accountant, everything that we do is historical. Okay. I'm Mm going to take your performance, measure that against what you were supposed to do, and then come up with, yes, you won or you lost. And then, okay, now there's the next season, your next financial year, your next financial quarter, and then you try to be successful. Learn from the I, I love your approach with that. So this is fascinating. I love your approach because that task condition standard is just a great model, I think, to break things down. I always like to, I, I love models, but I love the ability to see things where you can break it down to its parts. And in the way you said that, where if you, if you have a certain number of tasks then you perform these to a certain standard. And then in that standard, can you do it in a certain condition? So, you know, if, if I'm fencing, I'm like, okay, maybe I just do it by myself, just practicing the lunge. That's the condition. But then to be successful, you've got that condition's got to change where somebody's trying to come at you. Right. You've got to do that same standard while you're in a different set of conditions and the conditions change things. Right. And so then it goes back and it exposes certain things that in the task that you've got, but you've always got something to drop back on And I think as leaders, if you're leading an organization, if you're leading a team, if you're coaching, if you're a one-on-one coach, I think this is a great, it's a great way to formulate because when you, what we talk about coaches closing gaps, that's one of the things that we say, the biggest, one of the biggest jobs of a coach is to close, find gaps and close those gaps. Not too much different than an entrepreneur or CEO and that just find, we're going to find gaps and that may be a gap in performance. It may be a gap in capability. It may be a gap between where we are, and where we want to be, whatever it is. But what you're saying is in this model, you're able to break it down and categorize where the gap is and then go back to the activity that's going to help you close it. So you're almost like, it's almost like a doctor. You're able to say, okay, well, they, they did not do it in this condition. Well, was it the condition? Can they do it by themselves without somebody coming in and attacking them? Okay. Okay. Well, they can't, then they're not meeting the standard. Okay. And what tasks are they messing up or not doing correctly? What do they need coaching on to hit that standard? I think as a coach, that's spot on. If you can't break down, and that's one of the reasons why when you're engaging with people and you're leading a team, clarifying those roles, responsibilities, clarifying their contribution to the team, clarifying on all these different levels is so important. 
is because if you don't, if you're not, if people are not clear on what that task level is, if they don't know what excellence is and what those tasks that they're required to do, then it's really hard to coach because they don't even know, they don't know what to do. But as a coach, I think if you can engage people at that level, I love that analogy that you're using at your fencing studios. That's fantastic. It's really good. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful, we created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. Thank you. Um, you've opened up 60 some odd fencing studios across the country. You've got this standard now. You've competed. You've gone and made the Olympic team, and you're starting to grow that for the last, you've been growing that for the last 30 years. But then we get to a place where like COVID happens and yep. it kind of upside downs everything. Let's talk about that and what that kind of pushed you into and forced you into doing. So COVID, everything that was a gym in the United States shut down. I went from being employed since about the age of 12 to the first time in my entire life, not having any way to make money or do anything. Mm. My very supportive wife allowed me to go to Texas to learn how to build shipping container homes. It's something that I had been watching on YouTube. There was a guy who had a channel containing luxury. It was really cool. Texas was wide open. He made a post saying he was going to offer eight people the opportunity to learn what he was doing, packed up, went to Texas for a week, learned how to do it, came back, and then started basically being an entrepreneur, setting up a business again, and was working with homeless veterans here Mm. in the upstate of South Carolina, trying to identify people who were veterans that were living on the streets, trying to get them clean and sober, and then try to put their lives back together. Was working with other veterans in the area. We would do container build basically taking a 20-foot shipping container, turning it into kind of like a small, tiny home cabin, and was doing that for about two years in the same time that as the country started opening up again, going back into fencing Mm. when the whole tax titan thing started. But that really seemed like it was a formative thing for you because it puts you in close proximity to a lot of veterans that were struggling. Yeah, it was rough. You talk to these guys about what they did in the service, what they gave to their service in the country, and then learning about how once they left the service, how it was a tough transition into the civilian life because they now had to find their way. They weren't being dictated what they had to do 24-7. They didn't have defined roles and responsibilities like you have in the military. And a lot of times they got disenfranchised with people in the civilian world because 
politics, backstabbing, people not basically keeping their word as far as what they were going to do and what they said that they could help with that threw a lot of them for a loop. Yeah. There's a lot of damage and a lot of broken, and I appreciate you stepping in the gap for them and, and trying to fill that and close that gap, coach. So that's good. I will say, though, that after the fencing kind of started opening back up and you got back in, you've had tremendous success on the national stage with your not only yourself making the Olympic team, but also with your students. You just you were just in Arizona. We were actually emailing back and forth this week about the show, and you were in Arizona at the national fencing tournament or championship. Yep. Yep. You've had students that have gone on and done some pretty great things. Yep. So I've probably sent over a hundred kids to the NCAAs, either making teams or on scholarships. We've had a couple of kids that have gone through the fencing schools, fencing programs that have made Olympic squads themselves. Yes. My biggest thing is the fact that we've sent kids to the Air Force Academy, presidential appointments. Wow. Um, some of them currently right now are still serving our country as captains and majors and lieutenants in the military. So from that aspect, a lot of these kids, I remember when they were in middle school and high school, they were trying to find their way, find the thing that they could spend their life doing and feel proud of. And knowing now that these same kids are in charge of dozens, if not hundreds of other people's lives on a daily basis allows me to go, if I don't have millions of dollars, I know I've contributed to society. So that makes Absolutely. Me Absolutely. That's awesome. Well done. I love it because you've had a very interesting career. I mean, you've been in multiple different vocations and multiple different industries, but there are these common threads that, that kind of weave through all of those things. Do you have a certain approach to learning or pulling up a, like a lot of information in a short period of time to get proficient in a, something that's completely new? My biggest thing is find the experts in the industry and gain whatever knowledge you can from them. Find out what the current standard is we were talking about earlier and then go, okay, if there is a problem in the industry, if there's a way it can be serviced, what does it need? One of the things a lot of guys in the military do is it's they have that service that they want to do. They want to do things, solve a problem. My, my wife says a lot of times that yeah, I'm always trying to solve problems. So from that aspect, it's okay. If there's an industry, if there's something that I can add to make the customer experience better, quote unquote, serve my fellow man, then it's more than just a paycheck. And if I'm talking to the people who are already in that leadership space, who are mm. already the experts there, they've already done the 80-20 rule where they know all the stuff that's important to actually be successful versus what someone would say is the busy work that really has no impact. On I think that's so great. What are the important values and metrics and how am I comparing our current performance to those metrics? So if you're listening to the last 10% today and you don't have something that you're reviewing on a regular basis, I'd encourage anybody to identify those important KPIs or OKRs. I think that's a huge thing. All right. So that brings us to today. And that is you've taken all these common threads, accounting, vet, entrepreneurship, starting things from scratch. And then you had something that's happened in the last year or two that has opened up a new opportunity for you. Let's talk about that for a minute. 
So um, tax titans came because last year, a buddy of mine has a tax practice and he'd been building it over the last 14 years, built a, a great practice, had about 1,200 clients. Um, and over the tax season of 2022, had four accountants that wound up leaving his uh, practice. One had a heart attack, a couple went out with COVID, somebody else got scalped. He knew that I was a former recruiter for Robert Half International dealing with accountants and stuff. Went into his office, worked the phone for about five hours trying to locate talent for him. Come to find out over the last 15 years, the talent pipeline for accountants in the United States has literally dried up. Everything's being mm. offshored to India and the Philippines. So basically told him he had two options. One was burn the place down and collect the insurance money. He really didn't want to do that. I said the other one was, okay, hey, I can come in and help you get through tax season. I joked around with my wife that I've jumped out of airplane, shot, stabbed, run over by a tank. The only time I thought I was actually going to die was that tax season. Because <laughs> you're still doing, you're still doing at this time, you're still doing the coaching and the fencing and all that yep. stuff as well, yep. right? So yep. that's so still, would, you're just helping a buddy out. You're saying, yep. okay, I'm going to help a buddy out that's in trouble right now during tax season. Oh my goodness. Of all things during tax season too. Good yep. gracious. And so about April 8th, there wasn't enough hours in a day to get through the 300 and some odd small businesses that he still had left that didn't want to file an extension. And I said, hey, I said, why don't we take half of these and we'll farm them out to the other accountants in the Greenville area and we'll pay them 100% of the fees. And he said that would be a great idea. And I said to him, okay, how do we, where do I go online, marketplace, platform to work with other small accounting firms here in Greenville. And he was like, nothing like that exists. And I chuckled because I was like, Amazon can have any physical product on my doorstep in 24 hours. <laughs> I can get a super car. I can Airbnb. I can do all these things online. We've been paying taxes for 120 years. Why can't I just work with another accountant? And he was like, nothing like that exists. So that began the last year of me, even though being a recovering accountant, I have learned more stuff about the tax industry um, than I ever would have thought that I wanted to learn, which has brought me full circle to now I've created a platform and we're working on training, transitioning veterans and military spouses, how to become tax professionals in order to try to fill that talent gap, that pipeline that doesn't exist here domestically in the United States. I love that. I love that. I love that theme, man. You're helping vets and you're helping their families and I love it. And you just pulled that thing through. You've got a great connection with that. And so tell us, okay, so let's talk about the tax industry because you told me something before we go on the show. I had, I was actually, I'm that it is shocking. Like I had no idea. Like I, in my head, I think, okay, Guys that work on your taxes, they are CPAs and they yep. do their thing and there's firms. And But tell us, tell the listeners what you learned when you got into this thing. So my wife and I went to a small business expo in New York and everybody was telling her, well, you have to be a CPA. You have to be a CPA. You have to be a CPA to do taxes. And then one of the people told her, she's, I did my stuff on TurboTax. And she was like, are you a CPA? He was like, no. Then, well, how did you file the taxes? And then as we did our research, we're like, all right, I have an accounting degree, so I guess I can do taxes. And then I was like, well, how do I get a license? How do I get a number? How do I interact with the IRS? And come to find out, if you pay $36 to the IRS, 
you get what's called a P-TIN number, which is a tax identification number as a preparer. And now I am able to file your taxes. I don't have to have insurance. I don't have to have a certification. I don't have to have an accounting degree. I don't have to be a CPA. I could literally be a guy selling mattresses out of my back of my store and I can say, hey, I have a P-10 number and I can do your taxes for you. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable. It's just, I never knew that. And it's actually quite disconcerting. (laughs) (laughs) Now, full disclosure, on our platform, we require people to have what's called an EFIN number, which is a background check by the FBI and the IRS. They have to have two years worth of experience and they have to have verified businesses that they've done returns for. Because in us realizing that it literally is the Wild West out there, we needed to put safeguards in place to know that people that were coming to our platform to find their professionals had a certain guarantee of service that basically, yes, this person's been through basic training, has served, and they know what they're doing. So you guys right now are raising capital. You're raising funds to continue to build out your platform. But who, tell us, tell me exactly like what is Tax Titans and who use it? If I'm an individual or if I'm a business owner, do I like log into Tax Titans and then I find, is it like a uh, almost like a marketplace for people to do my taxes. Is that yep. what this is? Yep. So we joke around that we're the Tinder of tax. That's a, it's good. It's a joke, but it's a good yeah. joke. All right. Yeah. No, you're going for that one time hookup once a year for getting right. someone to do your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Oh, so, man. so you as a taxpayer, a small business owner will fill out a tax questionnaire. And then hundreds of accountants that are on the platform bid on doing your taxes for you. And then you get to review their credentials. You get to review their information, their background, how long they've been doing it. If they are a CPA, if they're an enrolled agent or an accountant, and then you select the person that you want to do your taxes based on the time frame that they've said that they could do it in and the price that they said they could do it for. And we're happy to say that we've gone through our first tax season. Nobody has complained that they feel like they got gypped or they didn't get the right tax bill, so to speak. And we've seen people save anywhere from 30 to 50% on their tax preparation. Oh man, that's awesome. awesome. We We discovered a law of unintended consequences. So somebody in New York state in New York city is paying somebody in New York city's wages to get their taxes done. And the tax Mm -hmm. forms there are the same across the entire United States. Mm -hmm. Now, the standard of living, say, in Greenville, the cost of living is a lot less. So someone in Greenville doing the taxes for somebody in New York City, the cost is going to be a lot less than somebody that's charging the due taxes in New York City. Wow. The forms are the same. The taxes are the same. The laws are the same. Laws the same. cost of living is totally different. And so you're just, you're just taking it, taking it remote, which is where a lot of businesses are these days. Anyway, is that how you're using the uh, veterans or spouses of veterans as your, how does that work? So for us, everything is remote. Everybody that's on the platform basically sets their own schedule. One of the reasons that we're considered a disruptor is we give the tax professional 90% of their bill. So the platform only wow. keeps 10%. Wow. Somebody that's working at, say, an H&R Block that hands a bill to somebody for 400 bucks that spend an hour doing the taxes, 
but they may make $20 an hour. So H&R Block made $380. That person made $20 an hour to do those taxes. Oh, wow. On our platform, it's okay. Then that means that a $400 bill, that person's making $360, but the platform is only keeping 10%. So we wind up only keeping 40. So we've literally turned the paradigm upside down where the worker bees, the people actually doing the work, are getting the lion's share of the money. And if you were to consider Tax Titans as being corporate, we're getting a very small slice of that pie. Yeah. And so I would think that your ability to recruit and keep and maintain good pool of talent is much higher because the person that's getting paid or could has the potential of getting paid over 300 bucks to do this versus the person that has the potential of getting 20 bucks to do it. Yeah. It's, it's exponentially. That's awesome. I love that. I love that model. I love that model. That's really okay. So we're going to have to keep up with you on this. We're going to have the last 10%. We're going to have to have you back on check in like in a year and say, where are you in this disruption process? We love it. I love entrepreneurship, love the disruption, love startups. All right. Well, so uh, tax titans, if you want to check them out, we'll put the information in the show notes. This is not a paid promotion. We had Alan on here because I have a friend of mine that's a CEO that says, you need to meet this guy. You need to talk to him and you need to get to know him. I know exactly why and what he was saying. This has just been fun, but we'll have you back on and see how things are going. You've been leading teams. You've been developing people. You've been starting companies. You've been helping in the community. If you were to give any advice to coaches or leaders, whether it's about developing, you've been coaching fencing for 30 years. So I would love for you to share any wisdom or nuggets that you have that you've gained through both entrepreneurship and coaching fencing and the military that you would like to share about leading and developing? Um, For me, the biggest thing that I tell people who are in a leadership position, people that I'm coaching that are competing is failure is fuel. Failure Mm -hmm. is not the thing that defines you. It's a lesson that you learn. You can read books about you didn't learn a way, you didn't fail, you learned a way not to do something. Mm. And as long as you are continuing to strive towards a goal, looking to strive towards being successful, everything that doesn't work on that path is just steering you towards a more direction of success. So I tell people in our teams, don't be afraid to break things. Don't be afraid to make failure. Go forth and do things. The worst thing you can do is not do anything. Hesitation is usually the thing that causes the most amount of mistakes. So just go forward. And, you know, like that old saying, if you're going through hell, go through like you own the place. So (laughs) I love that. I think, too, though, when you hear about these successes, like when they're creating the the light bulb and, oh, it's just 999 ways that figured out not to make a light bulb. And I think that sounds very nostalgic after you've got over a thousand and you've made the light bulb. But when you're at like 992 and you've got to get, and you don't know if it's 992 and you're going to hit it a thousand or if it's going to be 10,000 or never, man, that is so hard. So like what you're saying when fearing failure is using failure as fuel, it is so true and it is so difficult. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're, or a team leader, or you're an innovator, it just understand that what he said is absolutely true and it's absolutely not easy. <laughs> so no, and I have a lot of failures underneath my, my belt and 
the kids that I train, they're like, oh, you've made an Olympic squad. You've won all these gold medals. I said, yeah, but what you don't see is the thousands of matches that I've lost. Mm. Thousands mm. of tournaments where I didn't make the cut. Mm. Yes, I've had those successes, but those successes have only been built on the failures in which I've learned something not to do going forward. I love that. And I think that's where the key is that so many times people put failure in, they associate failure with their identity. So I am a failure because I have failed. And I love how you said it's just, you just, you're using that as fuel. It's not you. It's something outside of you that's fueling you. And it's that you in that process. So if you're going through something, if you're trying to innovate, if you're trying to be a disruptor, if you're leading a team, if you're trying to step out and do something, you are going to fail. You're going to get, you're going to have some scars. You're going to mess things up. You're going to make a mess. And the biggest thing to remember is that's not your identity. When you go through these failures, it's a learning opportunity that you can use as fuel to keep you going forward and either get better and doing that or do something else and use that as an education. But I think that you got to be able to separate that from your identity so you don't lose motivation and just give up. And I think the great people like you and like the other guests we've had on that finish well and finish strong do exactly that. They look at failure and they don't associate it with their identity because I failed, I'm a failure they associate it with a part of the process. And if we engage in that process, part of the process is failing. And then if we can make it through the other side, then we're going to get to that success, whether it's success in that one thing or something else. Man, that's awesome. Good word, man. That's good word, Alan. Listen, we always ask our guests at the end of the last 10%, if there was somebody that they would like to uh, to hear on the last 10%. So if you think about it, is there any guest that you would like to hear guest on the last 10%? Yes. So one of my mentors is a gentleman by the name of Dan Roselli. He runs RevTech Labs up in Charlotte and made a lot of money in the IT space in the after the dot-com crash. And instead of just taking all of his money and enjoying life, he has been for the last decade investing and helping companies like Tax Titans and is probably one of the most humble people that I know, probably knows everybody in the fintech space. And he's just somebody that believes in the whole entrepreneurial spirit, believes that if somebody's got a good idea, sometimes they only need an extra door opened, another introduction. He really believes in the person and getting to know them. I would love to hear your questions and stuff yeah. to somebody like Dan that was like, hey, okay, how do you pick the people? How do you pick the winners? What do you see as the failings? What do you see as entrepreneurs that that you pick out of the, I think, 4,000 people that went and applied to be part of our cohort to which they only picked 13? Wow. I'd love to know what his thought wow. process is. I would love that. You'll have to connect us. You connect okay, us, we'll have Dan on the show. That's that. absolutely 100%. We'll get Dan on the last 10%. I would be, I'd be honored to ask those questions and spend some time with Dan. He sounds like a really cool guy and yep. sounds like he's got some really neat perspectives, especially on technology and that. So I, that would sound, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Listen, Alan, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. The last 10%, it's just been fun. I love the fact that I now know someone who has sank an M1 tank and a, a fencing Olympic fencer, an entrepreneur. It's just a kindred spirit, man. So thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. 
We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.